Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you all. You're uh, going to need uh, Mark chapter 4 and 5 open as we look at it this morning. But how about I pray as we look at God's Word together? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for another opportunity to hear from you. Lord, wherever we're at, Lord, we pray that you would help us to to, uh, put aside the things of this week, whether they are troubles or joys. Uh, Lord, help us to now focus on what you say to us through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, can I just have my microphone a little bit down? Because it feels a bit boomy. So thanks, mate. Thank you. Um, I, I was, when I was at Moore College, I was a student minister at a church down the road from Moore College called St. Stephen's Newtown. And St. Stephen's Newtown kind of had a kind of odd history. It, it was considered by many the church in the centre of Sydney that was kind of the more progressive church. It wasn't as conservative as most Sydney Anglican churches. And yet when I was there, I was under a boss named Peter Rogers who was doing a great job, an evangelical who was really trying to revive this church and he did a great job. And uh, what was interesting about this church is that we would have people who were uh, from different Anglican traditions, generally more progressive, come and visit us. And there was one man who was an Anglican minister in a liberal diocese. His daughter was coming to uh, Sydney Uni to, to study, and so he brought her along to church. And I remember I was preaching on one of the miracle stories in uh, one of the Gospels, and uh, what was really interesting was I, was, I was just talking about it, I just uh, kind of preached a passage, I didn't do any apologetic stuff. But after the service, he talked to another student minister and he went at her. He said, how can you guys have a brain and believe this? How can you say that that Jesus did impossible feats? He didn't do them. You can't be a modern person and believe in flying around the world in in a jet and believe in electricity and believe that Jesus did these things. Miracles are absolutely impossible. And he was fuming. He was furious. And then he stormed out with his daughter. I was talking to my friend, and she was really upset. She had tears in her eyes. And I I asked her, why why are you crying? Is it because he yelled at you, or is there something else? He goes, oh, no, no, yelling is fine, you know, whatever. She's uh, uh, not a professional athlete, but an elite athlete. So she goes, oh, I've had coaches yell at me. That doesn't matter. She goes, I feel so upset because I feel so stupid. I feel so stupid. I'm so embarrassed. That that maybe I, I, I shouldn't be able to believe these things. And she goes, sometimes when I read the stories of Jesus doing miraculous things, I, I, there's some kind of unbelief that, that comes on me. And for, for many of us, these stories, yeah, we believe them to be true, but they're just a little bit kind of embarrassing because if we shared with our friends and family who don't believe in Jesus that this is what we're studying you know, we would get those looks, wouldn't we? Yesterday, I played basketball with a bunch of friends down at Macquarie Uni, and a lot of them know I'm a pastor. And there's one guy in particular, we've talked about Jesus a fair bit, and he said, so Hans, what are you speaking on tomorrow? I said, well, I'm actually speaking on Mark's gospel. 
And he goes, great. He goes, um, so, so what, what's Mark's gospel all about? I said, it's all about Jesus. I'm speaking on three stories from Mark's gospel. He goes, oh, so what happens in those three stories? And then I had a choice. Do I tell him or do I kind of change the subject? And so I said, there are three stories. One, where Jesus calms the storm. Two, where Jesus actually expels demons from a demon-possessed man. Three, um, uh, Jesus inadvertently heals a woman and raises a little girl from the dead. And he went, oh, okay. Um, so how are the Golden State Warriors going? And he changed the subject straight away. You could see that he thought, man, hands is a little bit nutty. I didn't realize he believes these things. Uh, and so I want to ask you today, is there any reason that we can say that these things happened? Or are they just nice stories that children believe, but adults don't? Well, I've actually asked a couple of these questions as uh, we go through. Here's the first question. Do modern, believe, sorry, do modern people not believe in miracles? Like that, that Anglican minister said, that most modern people don't believe that miracles happen. And can I just say, since the 70s, what has been really interesting is that when people have surveyed all Australians and all people in the West, that people less and less believe in the God of the Bible, but the belief in the supernatural is going up and up and up. And in fact... I was reading stats that, that in Sydney, a, a, a group surveyed about 10,000 people and 91% said they believe in the supernatural and they believe in the supernatural to invade our natural world. And so, can modern people believe in miracles? Absolutely. And by the way, I've got quotes for all this. I was going to put them all in the sermon, but I just thought the sermon was too long already on a hot day, so I've taken them all out. But you can get the quotes from for me after. Okay, but here's the second question. Are there good, any good arguments against miracles? Are there philosophical arguments that say that miracles don't happen? And can I just say, I have not read a modern philosopher on miracles, and I've read so much on miracles because it was a big stumbling block to my faith. No modern philosopher will say that miracles can't happen. And here's why. Even if they're an atheist, here's why. Because for miracles not to happen, you have to prove that there's no supernatural forces out there. And because you can't, because we can't prove that the supernatural forces don't exist, you cannot say miracles don't happen. And that's why even an atheist philosopher won't say that miracles can't happen. They say, I don't believe that miracles can't happen, but there's no good argument against them. Here's the next question. Did Jesus perform miracles? Our Anglican friend said Jesus didn't perform miracles. They were the early church. And can I just say once again, I've read so much on the historical Jesus. And what's happened since about 1973 uh, is, is a huge turn, two big turns. The first is that most people, most people studying the historical Jesus say that Jesus was Jewish. Before then, they were saying he's kind of influenced by Greco-Roman stuff and that kind of thing. But now they also say that one of the most secure historical facts about Jesus was that he did miracles. Here's one of the preeminent scholars of the historical Jesus, a guy named John Meyer. He says this. 
the miracle traditions about Jesus' public ministry are already so widely attested in various sources and literary forms by the end of the first, uh, end of the first Christian generation that total fabrication by the early church is practically speaking impossible. What is he saying? Is if you read the Bible, the miracle stories about Jesus are everywhere. There's so much everywhere that it is absolutely impossible for the first Christians to make this stuff up. In fact, if you look at uh, the early Jewish uh, enemies of Christians, they acknowledged that Jesus did supernatural things. They just called him a miracle who deceived God's people. And so even Jesus' enemies are saying that actually he seemed to do amazing things. Here's the last question, and I'll finish with this. This short intro with this. I'm sorry, I will go one back. No, it's not there. Okay, one last thing. Historical Jesus scholars are looking for different things in different texts that say that these kind of things happened. They give you kind of markers. Can we go to the next slide? This isn't working all of a sudden. And here is one of them. In the, in the ancient world, what you wouldn't do if you were making a myth up, making up a story, is you wouldn't put in incidental detail. Now, we do that today. If I'm making up a story, you put in incidental detail to actually kind of heighten our enjoyment of the story. They didn't do that back then. You would only put in incidental detail if you're an eyewitness. And these passages are replete with incidental details that actually don't add anything to the text or anything to the story. I'll give you two. It's in the first, first story where Jesus calms a storm. Notice, first and foremost that in verse four, uh, 36, there are other boats. What does that relate to the story? Absolutely nothing. And so a lot of historical Jesus scholars would say, actually, that's an incidental detail that shows that this is a historical account. Second of all, if you re- read on, it talks about Jesus lying down. He's sleeping. But what's he sleeping on? He's sleeping on a cushion once again, an eyewitness detail. Another eyewitness detail is the fact that you've got, in a Greek uh, Bible, you've got two words in Aramaic, Talitha Kum, which historical Jesus scholars once again say that, you know, a Greek speaker like Mark wouldn't just bung something in from Aramaic. No, this is so important to what happened that it created a lasting memory. So can we believe that these things happen? I would say absolutely true. But here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus did powerful things. But if we really understand Jesus' power on a heart level, if we get them on a heart level, well, I want to say that you will have a strength within you that you'll be able to withstand whatever life throws at you. And so these are not just really cool stories about Jesus doing amazing things, but actually the power that, that Jesus has here today can actually so empower you to live for him in this fallen world so that you will be unbreakable. So these are not just stories of Jesus' power, but real events which will empower you today and every day. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see that Jesus has power over nature, Jesus has power over the spiritual world, and Jesus has power over life and death. Let's have a look at the first point. Jesus has power over nature. Have a look at verse 35. 
that evening when Jesus, when, sorry, that, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, and they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that, was, that it was nearly swamped. Here they are on the Sea of Galilee. One of the things that happens with the Sea of Galilee is that it's, uh, it's well below sea level. And so you've got these big mountains that are around it. And so when the air from the mountains comes and the cool air comes from, from the, the sea, the storms start very, very quickly. And, and this is a huge storm. It's a furious squall. But I like Matthew's account because you read Matthew's parallel account and it has two words. And I hate to quote the Greek, but here's what it says. It says, seismos megas. Mega seismic activity. It's using the language of an earthquake on the water to describe how like intense this is. Now, have you ever gone have you ever been in an earthquake? I was kind of in one in 1989. Who was who remembers the Newcastle earthquake here? Does anyone, some of you guys? I remember I was at my uh, grandmother's place in San Susie. And my dad was outside, he was working on the house, I forget what he was doing, and we felt the tremors from the Newcastle earthquake, and it was almost like the house just went like this for a split second. We came out and we said, hey dad, what did you do? Because as an eight-year-old, I thought my dad was that powerful. And he said, no, I don't know what happened. And we found out there was an earthquake in Newcastle. And we were a couple of hundred k's away maybe, and yet we found it was huge. Can you, can you imagine just what it's like to be in a, in a small boat, not, not much bigger than like two tinnies put together, and here is an earthquake on the water. And even though these guys were fishermen, they are absolutely and utterly terrified. They are absolutely and utterly terrified. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus gets up and says, quiet and be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. I'm blown away by that. I, I can't get my kids to do what I asked them to do. I can't get my dog to come to me. But here is Jesus says to the wind and the waves, be still. And they are. Be still and they are. One of the things what we've got to realise is that our, our relationship to water is very different from the people in the ancient world. Well, I had some family from Denmark, and what did we do? We went to the beach for fun, right? But you wouldn't do that in the ancient world. Because, because the, the, uh, especially if you're an Israelite, because the water was this kind of scary place where, you know, you could get killed, and yet all the way through the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, God is the one that rules over the water. You see that especially in Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. Let, let me read it to you. It says this. Someone, someone out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at the wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. 
They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. See, what what this passage is saying is that God is sovereign over the sea and there's there's people on the sea and they know that the wind and the waves are there created by God, but they also know that it is God who is in control, that God says a word and it stops. See, what Jesus is here proving that he's not just powerful, but he is all-powerful. He is the most powerful being in the universe. He is God in the flesh who can speak to creation and say, be still, and it is. And yet there's a question here. There's a question that the disciples asked, and I wonder if you saw it. Verse 38, Teacher, don't you care? Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, what you've got to realize is that in the original, you can construct a sentence which implies the answer is yes. And so I think they're in their heads are saying, well, don't you care? Of course you do, but in their hearts, they're going, you're asleep. What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing, Jesus? Does he care? Absolutely, he shows it. But what we've got to realize is that we've got to put this passage in the context of Mark's gospel. And we've noticed in Mark's gospel already what's happening to Jesus. That Jesus, guys, can you just take that slide down? This isn't working, sorry. Uh, What's been happening to Jesus? There's been a fury around him. That people want him dead. People are rejecting him outright, including his family. So there's this storm of controversy around him. And Jesus is going to the cross where he will take the storm of God's wrath against him. There's a a storm for the disciples. There's the storm of the controversy of Jesus. There's the storm of God's wrath that he is facing. And Jesus is asleep. Why? Because he's absolutely in control. He is not faced. And here's why that's important to you. We, some of us are going through huge storms in our lives. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it is, it is the death of a loved one. Maybe we've got battles in the courts. Maybe it is we've got battles at home or at our workplace. And it feels like God is asleep on the job. And we're asking, "Do God, are you caring? Where are you, God? And the thing is... If Jesus was in control of all the storms that were raging around him and he's caring for us, or caring for the disciples in the midst of that, can't he be in control of the storms that are happening in your life? This passage says that Jesus is the God of the universe who, is pow- who has power over the physical world. And so, of course, he is in control of the storms that are going on in your life. But we ask that question, don't we? And some, some of you guys have asked that question of God lately. God, don't you care? And the answer is yes. Because Jesus is the God who went into the storm of God's wrath on the cross for you. Does he care? Of course he does. Don't, don't let your circumstances cast doubt on that. Look to the cross. 
where God has shown that he cares for you. Jesus has power over the physical world, which shows he's God, but he also has power over the spiritual world. That's our second point. Let's have a look at verse 1 of chapter 5. They went across to the lake, uh, across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Now, what we've got to realize is that I dare say for most of us in our imaginations, we've got a very sanitized view of this story. I was at Kurong a couple of weeks ago and I was flipping through a children's Bible. I had this story and uh, this guy just looked like me getting out of bed in the morning. He just had a bit fuzzy hair and that was a bit about it. And yet you have a look at this passage and he is utterly scary. He's got superhuman strength. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. He is in a region where it's absolutely unclean. And then Jesus asked him, what's your name? My, my name is Legion, for we are many, he says. A legion is between 300 and 600 soldiers. Hundreds of soldiers. And yet the demons know who Jesus is. Verse 7, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. Jesus cast this demon out, or these demons out. They go into a bunch of pigs. The pigs rush down the steep bank into the water and they drown. And notice, notice how the people respond. Have a look at verse 18. Sorry, verse 16. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Notice what scares them the most. It's not the pigs. Have a look again. Verse 16. The first thing they tell them is what happened to the demon-possessed man. And then they told him about the pigs, which implies that the biggest thing, that the biggest news was, do you remember this demon-possessed man? Now he, he's not demon-possessed. And they are terrified. They are terrified. Just as the disciples were terrified, they are now terrified. Many people have said to me, um, Hans, if, if God did something amazing right here, I would joyously believe I remember as a teenager, one of my friends said to me, Hans, if, if God turned VB into a beer that was tasty, I would believe in him. Uh, another friend of mine said, if I caught the Manly Ferry and it was raining and everything like that and, and Jesus stilled the storm, I would believe in him. 
And then I remember another, another friend of mine who worked at RPA, he said, you know, if, if Jesus came into RPA, healed everyone and went to the morgue and raised everyone from the dead, then I will believe him. And I said, no, I don't think you would. I don't think belief will be the first thing that you would experience. I think it would be fear. You will be terrified. Why? Because you've never seen someone that powerful. Now, Jesus has power over the spiritual world. And the spiritual world in the Bible is not a neutral place. You and I would be terrified if we saw this. If we saw that power up front, we would be terrified. A number of years ago, I took my kids uh, to show them a gym that I was going to. And... Um, and Elijah wasn't around at the time, it was just Emma and uh, Niels, and they saw a guy who was a bit shorter than me, but just, just huge and massive, and he was just picking up like, I don't know, 600 kilos and just shoving them over his head with one hand or whatever, and they saw that power, and I knew him, so I wasn't afraid, but my kids were absolutely afraid. Why? Because they had never seen power like that before, and yet that power powers in into nothing compared to the power of Jesus. One of the reasons I think we look at the miracles of Jesus and we go, they couldn't have happened, is because really, if we really face them head on, they are terrifying events. Because they say that there is someone in this world who rules the world who's far more powerful than me. And so they're absolutely terrifying. And yet there may be some people here that are saying, hands, all this demon stuff is ridiculous. We, we live in a secular society... And so therefore, I, like we just don't believe in demons today. This is just ridiculous. And here's the problem, I think, with secularism. Secularism says two things. It, 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 says, it, it says that there's no real answer for evil, no, no answer where evil came from. Oh, of course, there's many different theories, but there's not one answer that, that actually makes sense. And yet here's the other problem, that secularism has got no idea of how to deal with evil. And, and, and last, last century, we saw how evil our world could be. And in the 20 years since, we have seen a lot of evil. And, and in fact, as people who were there in Nazi Germany, a lot of the time talk about the evil that was there in very kind of mystical ways. Here's a guy called Alfred Weber. He's a sociologist, an economist, who was there between the two world wars in Germany. And he says this, It was as, as if certain forces sprang up out of the ground, giants of action, crafty, hung, hungry for power, which nobody had noticed before, seemed to shoot up like a crop of dragon's teeth. He, he, he's a man, a very, very intelligent man. And he's saying, I was there in Germany, and yet there was something that's evil just kind of spread up out of the ground. It was, I don't know where it came from. And here's a totally secular man that says, evil has got this unexplainableness about it. Where did it come from? And yet the Bible actually has, uh, has very clear things to say about evil. It says there's someone behind the evil of this world and one day says that Jesus is going to deal with evil. One day, Satan will be totally defeated. Satan had his first big defeat on the cross 
As Jesus went to the cross, Satan was defeated. Because at the cross, the two big lies of Satan were demolished. The first lie of Satan is this, that God doesn't love you. And God demonstrates his love for us in this while we're sinners, Jesus died for us. And the second great, great lie of Satan is you cannot be forgiven for your sin. It's there for eternity. And yet Jesus dealt with your sin. Jesus on the cross defeated Satan, defeated the great evil. And just like this man, this demon-possessed man, he too was rejected. He too was naked. He too was left outside the town for dead. And yet, Jesus gave this man life. But to give this man life, he had to give up his own life on the cross. And one day, this same Jesus will come back to judge those who have decided to throw their lot in with Satan, who have decided to practice evil in this world. And why is that important? It's important because there's some people in this room, I hope it's very small, but in talking with you guys, I know that, that some of you guys have undergone terrible evil. Terrible evil. And, I, and, I, and as I was preparing this sermon, I was just thinking about a lot of you guys and the stories that you have shared. One day, that evil will be dealt with. Jesus will come back in judgment to destroy all evil. And so, remember that. When I think of the evil that has been done to me, and there has been evil things that have been done to me, I keep remembering that one day Jesus is going to come back and one day evil is going to be no more. We live in hope. Jesus is the God who has power over the spiritual world and that means one day evil is going to be dealt with. And finally, Jesus has power over life and death itself. What we see in this story is Jairus, a synagogue ruler. He is desperate. He is at the top of his game. And yet he's so desperate that he goes to Jesus. He's desperate because his little girl is dead or is dying, as the passage says. And he's tried everything, but he comes to Jesus. And Jesus goes with him in verse 24. And then in verse 25 to 27, there's this lady that's been bleeding for many, many years. And she just thinks, if I touch his cloak, I will be healed. And so she does it and she's healed. But in verse 30, have a read of it with me. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched your clothes? Sorry, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask who touched me. You go, Jesus, you're on a throng of people. Everyone's touching you. And this lady says, I touched you. Told him the whole truth. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, she was going on a superstition. She thought if I, if I touch his cloak, but back then they thought if I touch a religious man's garment, guess what, I'll be healed. And Jesus is saying, no, it was your faith in me that saved you. Go and not only be healed of your suffering, but go and live for me. Jesus has power over this sickness. But then you're thinking about Jairus. 
Because in verse 35, have a look at, look at it with me. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Jeez, don't, don't they uh, need a course in compassion? Why bother the teacher anymore? And Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. Keep trusting in me. And Jesus goes in. And here are the words of Jesus that are, that are just mind-blowing. Verse 39, he went in and said... Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, if I was Jairus, I would not be laughing. And I don't think Jairus was. I think everyone else probably was laughing. Because here's a ridiculously insensitive thing to say. Here's my, my beautiful girl. She is dead and you're saying she's just asleep, Jesus. Where do you get off saying that? How dare you say that? Why does he say that? Well, read right on. Verse 41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. These are loving words. These are the words of a father who is trying to wake their little daughter sensitively, carefully, gently. See, for, see when you realise who Jesus is, when Jesus has got you by the hand, death is just a little nap. It's not a big, scary thing at all. And so here is Jesus. He's got power over the spiritual world. He's got power over life and death itself. And therefore, what that means is one day, if you die before Jesus comes back, one day he will reach down into death itself. And, and bring you back, you'll be resurrected with a whole new body. And what does that mean for us now? Well, that means that death is not a scary thing in the, anymore. That death has been defeated through what Jesus has done on the cross and also by his resurrection. I, I've told this story before, but I'll t tell it again to finish. My friend Ian Powell tells a story of a, a brilliant young man who was a Barney's. He had his life before him, his whole world before him. And one day after going out, one Saturday morning, he woke up with a splitting headache. He went to the emergency room because the, the headache was so bad and it didn't go away. And he found out he had a brain tumour. And he only had mere weeks to live. His, his uh, Bible study came and visited him. And they were kind of uh, trying to talk with him, but by this time, he lost the ability to speak. And so they were kind of playing charades and, and doing this thing, and that didn't work. So what they did is they went, they, he grabbed the hold of someone's, um, someone's fingers, and they would go A, B, C, and he would, okay, C, okay, uh, A, B, C, and get to E, you know, C, E, and they would spell out words and that kind of thing. One of them asked, how are you feeling? And he spelled out slowly, I am so excited. I am so excited. Because he had his faith in Jesus. And death was just a nap that he's going to wake up from. My kids hate going to sleep before their birthday. Why? Because they can't wait. They can't wait for their birthday. And yet that's what death is for us. 
It's like a sleep before the biggest party that we'll ever experience. Some of you guys are facing death at the moment. Maybe it's through a loved one. Maybe it's yourself. And yet what you've got to realize, because of what Jesus has done, because of his power over sickness and death, you and I don't have anything to fear. Because for us, death is just a little nap that Jesus one day will reach into death and pull us out of. We will be raised and be with him for eternity. Jesus is all-powerful, absolutely. He has power over nature. He has power over the spiritual world. He has power over life and death itself. And, and, and as I said, can you see how if you, if you get Jesus' power, if it animates your heart, no matter what this world can throw at you, you will be indestructible because God is empowering you to live in response to his great power and because of what he has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage, this remarkable passage, these three great stories. Lord, I pray for those of us who are dealing with uh, just hardships in our life, that, that may be dealing with evil or evil that's been done in our past. Maybe it is uh, facing sickness or death. Lord, help us to realize that Jesus has power over it all. He has conquered it all. And help us to live in that power and in response to that power, knowing that one day we will be united with him for eternity. Amen.